female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He hit your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Boom, 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 ripping through flesh is what I do best. Tear off an arm, amputate a neck, eyes removed, cranium smashed, decomposing remains, severed in half, torsos hanging by their own intestines, ripped off all bodily extensions, stumps writhing with infection, suffering a rancid amputation. Welcome back, everybody, to Man It Is the Only True Crime Podcast. What was that? What a what a bad way to open the series. My God. Um, <laughs> welcome back to Man It Is the Only True Crime Podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. Except for today, where the killers are real guys and gals and non-binary pals, maybe. Uh, hi. You're probably wondering, what was the... Why did I just have to listen to the worst song I've ever heard in my life. Um, a little bit of backstory. In the early 2000s, uh, there was a, you know, satirical political television show on the ABC uh, in Australia called The Chasers War and Everything. They were great. They would skewer the left. They would skewer the right. Um, great political satire. Um, and one of the, um, one of the guys who ran the show, his name was Andrew Hansen. He um, <laughs> he he was like a musical comedian, and he decided that uh, one day he was going to do like a lounge chair jazz uh, cover of a song by a band called Cannibal Corpse. And the um, the yeah, Cannibal Corpse, and the song was called Rancid Amputation. And I was just thinking about that as I was setting up for the show today. Um, I was just thinking back on that band Cannibal Corpse and how relevant it is today because today we're talking cannibals everyone. That's right. Uh, human cannibalization to be specific. So last week I was on the, uh, sorry, a few days ago, I was on the train to Sydney to see a friend perform in a show. Um, and I put a poll up on the Instagram basically saying, I've got three ideas for an episode next week. Uh, help me choose. And so I put those options up and overwhelmingly, um, within the first hour, the vote was skewing towards cannibalism. So I said, right, okay, excellent. I'll start researching that. And then actually, to be completely honest and fair, to be completely translucent with you, uh, not translucent, transparent. Translucent's kind of yucky, transparent with you. Um, I went back and checked the poll and it actually skewed the other way to doing um, a Killer Cryptids episode on the Wendigo, but I'd already started researching and so I wasn't going to pull the pin. Um, so that's what we're doing today. That's right. Today we're talking about human cannibalization. Now, you might be thinking, isn't this an animal podcast? Isn't this a podcast about animals attacking and eating people? And it is. You're right. It, it absolutely is. But it's also a podcast about man eaters, people who eat animals who eat men. People are animals. Uh, this counts. It's basically what I'm telling you. Yeah, this counts. Absolutely. A cannibal by definition, a human cannibal is a man-eater. So that's why we're talking about it today. So it's qu obviously human cannibalization has been, you know, rife throughout civilization since we rocked up on this planet 6,000 years ago for all our religious friends out there. Um, no, just kidding. Whenever we popped up, uh, it's been uh, an aspect of our society and our culture. Um, and it's a massive subject. Like human cannibalization, it's, it would take, it would take like 10 Two hour long episodes, like twenty hours to to tell everything there is to do in, in that um in, in this uh topic in this subject. So I'm not going to do that. What today is and probably next week as well. It's going to be an overview of human cannibalization. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh you know the history of cannibalism. We're going to talk about some serial killers, absolutely, and also some survival situations where people have been forced into cannibalism to save their own lives. Uh, yeah, it is quite a large subject. Trust me. So we're going to get right into it in a second. Uh, before we do, one thing you might hear, a buzz, you may, maybe you won't be hearing it, but if you do hear a like buzzing in the background, it's actually so hot right now in this recording studio. I had to um, record somewhere else today and it's a nice little setup. I am enjoying it. Um, 
but it's so hot, I just had to put a fan on, so if you do hear that, apologies. Um, but I would have probably passed out from heat exhaustion if I didn't. So, uh, you know, I love you guys. I love making content for you, but I don't love you to the point of unconsciousness. Sorry. There's only three people in this world who I love to the point of unconsciousness. My fiancé, my mother, and uh, um, Ryan Reynolds, uh, actually, weirdly enough. He was the first person to pop into my head. I actually don't like him that much, but I do love him. Uh, man, did anyone see the trailer for Deadpool and the Wolverine? That came out since last week. My God. So absolutely fucking pumped for that. And also, um, I don't know if you guys know this. I'm a massive superhero Marvel nerd. Massive Marvel head. And Deadpool trailer came out. Um, the Fantastic Forecast was, was released. And uh, the trailer for X-Men 97 came out. It was a good week to be a Marvel fan. It's been a while since I could say that, but it was a good week to be a Marvel fan. Um, I wonder if any of you guys are, uh, you know, Marvel nerds as well. Probably some of you are. Um, send us a DM on Instagram if you are, and we'll have a chat. I'd love to know who your favorite X-Men is. Mine's Iceman, because he's gay. Uh, it's not the reason. It's just, he is gay. But I like him because he does cool ice powers. Anyway... <laughs> A little bit off track. Let's uh, let's get into the topic today, guys. It's going to be a big one, so maybe grab a drink, grab a White Claw. I have stopped drinking as of last night. Um, you're welcome. Um, so I'm going to just grab a, a nice cold glass of apple juice, and uh, yeah, let's let's get right into it. This is part one, probably of part of two parts. This is part one of our series on human cannibalism. Yucky, yucky, yum yums. <laughs> So, human cannibalization, as you might already know, is the act of eating another person's flesh or internal organs. A person who practices cannibalism is known as a cannibal, and the word cannibal is derived from the Spanish cannibal, or caribal, originally used as a name for the Caribs, a people from the West Indies said to have eaten human flesh. The older term, anthropophagy, meaning eating humans, is also used for human cannibalization. And there is some confusion about when each of those two terms is appropriate. Sometimes anthropophagy is used to refer to instances where people do not kill uh, a human, but simply eat the flesh of a dead human, uh, most, mostly to survive, uh, mostly for nutrition, to survive in a, a disaster or survival situation. Um, in zoology... The term cannibalism refers to animals ingesting pieces of other members of the same species for nourishment. And in fact, you know, just to keep it really animal related for the moment, just so you guys don't get a bit of shock, because we're talking about something that's not really animal related right now. Um, uh, let's play a game. Uh, I'll, I'm going to name three animals and I want you to tell me, or just think in your head, you can't tell me because th that's not how this format works. Um, I want you to think of which one you think is the cannibal, okay? So the three animals I'm going to pick are um, uh, chimpanzees, okay? Uh, hippos and uh, hamsters. Which of those three do you think is the cannibal? Which of those three animals do you think practice uh, cannibalization of their own species? Yeah. Have you locked in your answer? Very good. If you're driving, honk your horn to lock in your answer. And if you're just sitting around at home, throw a glass against the wall to lock in your answer. Okay, good. Uh, if you said it's a trick question, it's all three of them, you would be correct. Uh, that's right. All three of those animals actually practice cannibalization, including the hamsters, which is cute. Um, other animals that practice cannibalization and cannibalism uh, include lions, cane toads, praying mantises, black widow spiders, and even polar bears. Um, that's not the complete list, of course, but those are some very well-known animals that do. Um, it is more prevalent in the insect world, apparently. Um, and fish in particular as well. Fish are big old cannibals, yeah. And birds as well. You know what? It's just really not limited. I think a lot of animals do it. Um, but back to humans. Uh, let's talk about early humans, like Neanderthals. So Neanderthals are thought to have practiced cannibalism, and uh, they could have actually been eaten by anatomically modern people, just like us. Cannibalism was practiced on rare occasion in Egypt throughout ancient and Roman periods, as well as subsequently during severe famines. 
The island Caribs of the Lesser Antilles, whose name derives the word cannibal, developed a long-standing reputation for eating human flesh, which was substantiated when their traditions were documented in the 17th century. The authenticity of these legends, as well as the prevalence of cannibalism in the culture, however, are up to debate. Cannibalism has been documented in many parts of the world, including Fiji, the Amazon Basin, the Congo, and the Maori people of New Zealand. Cannibalism was also practiced in New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, and human flesh was sold in markets throughout Melanesia and the Congo Basin. Consuming body parts or blood for medical purposes was also a common kind of cannibalism in early modern Europe. This practice peaked in the 17th century and in certain circumstances continued into the second half of the 19th century, so quite recently. Cannibalism has been said to test the limits of cultural relativism since it pushes anthropology scientists to define what is or is not beyond the pale of acceptable human behaviour. A few researchers contend that there is no clear evidence that cannibalism has ever been a socially acceptable practice anywhere in the world, but such views have been widely rejected as incompatible with available data. So uh, one thing I'm just going to say at the front of this episode, it's really easy for us to look at um, ancient or, you know, um, uh, more primitive cultures. Primitive is not the right word. That's kind of insulting. It's, it's easy for us to look at earlier human societies and culture um, through our modern eye and through our modern lens and look back at the practice of cannibalism being practiced by them and have a feeling of disgust and um, superiority over, over these people. And while, you know, it's, it's, it's probably the, the, um, the biggest cultural taboo in the world, cannibalism, um, I don't think it's right to look back at these people um, with, any, with any sort of... Um, feeling of superiority absolutely um it's cannibalism happens everywhere in every single culture on the planet um it happens uh or i should say pretty much all of the cultures on the planet it has happened at some point um throughout history whether it's an you know institutionalized part of society or whether it's for um survival after you know um disasters natural disasters or because other food was scarce um it happened across the world, in Europe, in the Americas, in Australia, uh, ev- everywhere it happened. So there's no point really looking down at these people with any kind of air of superiority because it's not helpful. It's not helpful to look at people who lived in a completely different time and period and and judge them for this. Obviously, you and I, I hope you wouldn't, you and I wouldn't, uh, you know, resort to cannibalism unless we didn't have a choice. Um, but, you know, it's it's not... It, it's not something we can judge them for. And I want to make that clear going forward as well, because uh, sometimes people will bring up the fact that ancient cultures use cannibalism as a form of racism. Um, and I'm going to give you an example here. I wasn't actually going to talk about this, but I think I will, because it's important. So in the research of this, I was um, reading through like lots and lots of research, going through all the continents and, and countries and seeing where, where it happened. And I got to Australia and I thought, oh, okay, I didn't know that... Um, you know, cannibalism had ever really been practiced in Australia. I'd heard, like, I had heard racists say that, you know, Aboriginal people did it. I don't know that it was widespread. Um, and and it's it, that's a half-truth, right? Um, but it, it is used by, by racists to look down at that culture and almost as an excuse for, um, you know, for, for colonizing the country. You know, they'll say, like, oh, well, like... Before we came along, they were all butchering eating and eating each other, which is not accurate. So what actually happened was, in some, not all, and it's really important to, to note, by the way, because I'm not sure if you know this, um, Australian indigenous cultures, uh, it's similar to in North America, where there's hundreds of, like hundreds of uh, nations, you'd call them, hundreds of Aboriginal countries that make up Australia. Um, all of which speak their own languages, have their own cultures, okay? So it's, 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 wrong to paint them all with the same brush there were some uh aboriginal countries um hundreds of years ago that did practice some forms of cannibalization particularly uh infant cannibalization uh one example of this is when there is evidence that when a a mother with like a a baby or a child that she has to carry around if she gets pregnant again uh it's very difficult for 
her to have two children to carry around more than one child before it can walk. Uh, and in, in some of those instances, in some places, um, there was a practice where the baby would, would be eaten by the relatives for, for nourishment, um, as well as just making life life easier as well. It's very uncomfortable to talk about. I feel uncomfortable talking about it because I know that there are people out there who who use this as a weapon to, to excuse racism and to kind of excuse the colonization of the country. And I just want to make really, really super clear that that is not... I don't stand on that. Not even close. Um, I don't think there's any point lying about history like it happened it is this was a practice that was not widespread throughout the the continent um but it it is documented to have happened um by indigenous people and non-indigenous people have have uh, either seen it happen or seen evidence of it that it had happened um there's no point lying about that i don't want to why i don't want to um you know whitewash history and pretend that that didn't happen because it did but i also want to make it clear it's not it's not it wasn't widespread throughout the country. Um, and that kind of uh, sentiment goes not just for Australia, but for all, all the cultures across the world, whether it's New Zealand or Papua New Guinea or Africa or Asia or North America or Europe, anywhere. Um, different cultures, different rules, different society, different expectations. We obviously wouldn't do it today, um, but there's no point looking back on, you know, there's no point for a white person to look at that happening in Australia and say, oh, what a bunch of fucking, you know, savages, because some people do say that, when there's evidence that in early Europe, um, cannibalism was, was prevalent as well for other reasons. So I kind of just want to go off from there. All right. That was a long tangent. I wasn't going to talk about that, but I feel, I, feel like, I feel like it's important to know that at the outset of this big series. So um, cannibalism, right? So it's been practiced for a number of settings, in a number of settings, and for a huge variety of reasons. But the three main reasons that people, well, the three only reasons people commit cannibalization, um, it's boiled into three subcategories. And I thought of this, when I was researching this, I thought of this myself. I was like, okay, it seems to be falling into one of three categories, um, each instance I was, you know, learning about. And then I found out that, no, like, actual scientists and anthropo- anthropologists, um, they, they also document these three things so the, the the way that um anthropologists talk about it you have institutionalized survival driven or disordered or pathological um reasons to communicate I, i'm gonna rename them as society survival and serial killers sss uh, there's no reason i i'm gonna go with those except for that i kind of the s thing was kind of cute so i did that um one major distinction is whether cannibal acts are accepted by the culture in which they occur. Institutionalized cannibalism, or whether they are simply practiced under starvation conditions to ensure one's immediate survival, which is survival cannibalism, or by isolated individuals considered criminal and often pathological by society at large, aka serial killers uh, or, or murderers that we know of. Cannibalism as a psychopathy or an ab- Apparent, abhorrent behavior. Um, so let's talk about institutionalized cannibalism first, otherwise known as um, as uh, society cannibalism. Institutionalized cannibalism, also known as learned cannibalism, is the consuming of human body parts as an institutionalized practice that is widely accepted in the community in which it happens. As we heard earlier, some people dispute that anywhere in the world cannibalism was widely accepted in any culture but it is generally by anthropologists uh that that is generally rejected the evidence seems to be that in some places in the world cannibalism was widely accepted in some small communities and tribes and civilizations on the other hand survival cannibalism refers to the consumption of others under conditions of starvation such as a shipwreck a military siege a famine in which persons normally averse to the idea are driven to it and uh, by the will to live. Cannibalism, often known as starvation cannibalism, has occurred in numerous civilizations where cannibalism is generally condemned. Cannibalism is reported to have been practiced by the survivors of the Essex and Medusae shipwrecks in the 19th century, as well as members of Franklin's Lost Expedition and the Donner Party. 
In such circumstances, necrocannibalism, which is eating someone else's corpse, is more common than homicidal cannibalism, which is killing someone and then eating their corpse. Even under the most extreme situations, the latter is always regarded as a criminal as as a as a crime under modern English law. Um, so there was a case uh, hundreds of years ago, I guess. Uh, it was the case of R. V. Dudley and Stevens, in which two men were convicted of murder for killing and devouring a cabin boy while stranded at sea in a lifeboat. Uh, now this court case and the way it was. Uh, how do you call it? the way it was ruled um essentially it, it outlawed and effectively ended the practice of shipwrecked sailors drawing lots to choose who would be eaten and uh killed and eaten to keep others from starvation um now this apparently was a time on a tradition and was also known as a custom of the sea um which is interesting uh that's probably we're not going to go too much into shipwreck survivors in this episode but that's something i'd be interested in reading about in the future um and of course, the third type of cannibalism, which is pathological or disordered or serial killer, um, is cannibalism um, that's ex- an expression of psychopathy or a mental condition that is, quote, considered to be an indicator of a severe personality disorder or psychosis by society, uh, by the society in which it happens. Some well-known cases of, um, uh, of pathological cannibalism include Jeffrey Dahmer, Albert Fish, Issei Sagawa and Armin uh, Miwes, uh, which we're, we're going to talk about all those guys next week, I'm pretty sure. I don't think we'll have time today. Cannibalism fantasies, whether carried out or not, are not particularly listed in a mental disease guide such as the DSM, likely because major cases that result in murder are exceedingly rare. There's a few other definitions of cannibalism that we're going to go into now because I think they'll be useful um, when we talk about specific situations, scenarios that have happened throughout history. So uh, exo-cannibalism and endo-cannibalism are frequently distinguished in institutional cannibalism. Endo-cannibalism refers to the ingestion of a member of the same community or family. It is frequently part of funeral ceremonies, much like a burial or cremation in other cultures. Consumption of the recently deceased in such rituals can be regarded as an act of affection and as an important element in the grieving process. It also has been described as a method of transporting the souls of the deceased into the bodies of their living descendants. Exocannibalism, on the other hand, refers to the consumption of somebody from outside of that society. It is frequently an act of aggression, often in the context of warfare, in which the flesh of murdered or captured adversaries is eaten to commemorate one's triumph over them. Both varieties of this cannibalism can be motivated by the belief that eating a person's flesh or internal organs will give the cannibal some attributes of the deceased. Uh, I remember learning in school, and I don't know if this was true, that sometimes in uh, South America, warriors would eat the heart of their enemy because they believed it would give them courage and bravery. Um... Some writers who have studied exocannibalism in New Zealand, New Guinea, and the Congo Basin have shown that similar beliefs do not exist in those places. Now, autocannibalism is also another kind of cannibalism, and it's known as autophagy, or self-cannibalism in some scenarios. It's a distinct type from exo- and endocannibalism, and it's defined as the act of eating parts of yourself. It does not appear to have been an institutionalized practice anywhere in the world, but rather occurs as a disordered behavior or for other motives, uh, motivations such as curiosity. Now, I will say, I th- I'm pretty sure also that auto-cannibalism does not include um, eating, or, like the, the um, well, the consumption of uh, human waste, such as feces and wee-wees. I don't think that counts. I also don't think if you eat your own hair or like fingernails, that counts either. And also, obviously, like with biology, um, we're constantly shedding skin cells. Uh, you're, you're, to cut a story short, you're eating yourself right now. Um, the cells in your mouth are dying and you're swallowing them every now and again. Sorry to gross you out, but it's true. That's what's happening. That also does not count as cannibalism, by the way, just in case you were um, not sure. Now, there's another type of... Um, of auto-cannibalism, which is known as forced auto-cannibalism. That's also been documented as an act of aggression in which persons are forced to eat pieces of their own body as a form of torture, um, such as cutting the nuts off and making them eat their own nuts, which is a threat often um, 
made by like Mexican cartels in lots of true uh, lots of crime television. I don't know if it actually happens. It's pretty gross. Now, exocannibalism, which is the act of eating someone from a part of a society that, you're, that you don't live in, is frequently related with the consumption of opponents as a form of aggression, sometimes known as war cannibalism. Endocannibalism is frequently related with the consumption of deceased relatives in burial rites motivated by affection, also known as funer- funerary or mortuary cannibalism. However, Acts of institutional or societal cannibalism might be motivated by a variety of other factors for which other terms have been coined. Medicinal cannibalism, also known as medical cannibalism, is defined as the ingestion of human tissue as as supposed as a medicine or tonic. Unlike other types of cannibalism, which Europeans typically frowned upon, the medicinal ingestion of human body parts was widely practiced throughout Europe from the 16th to the 18th centuries, with early accounts of the practice dating back to the 1st century CE. It was also widely practiced in China. Sacrificial cannibalism is the consuming of the flesh of victims of human sacrifice, as seen amongst the Aztecs. Human and animal remains discovered Gnosis in Crete have been interpreted as evidence of a Bronze Age ritual in which children and sheep were sacrificed and consumed together. According to ancient Roman records, the Celts of Britain practiced sacrificial cannibalism, and archaeological evidence uh, supporting these assertions have now been discovered. uh, Infanticile... Infanticide, sorry, infanticide cannibalism, also known as cannibalistic infanticide, occurs when newborns or infants are slain because they are considered unwanted or unfit to live, and they are consumed by the mother, father, both parents, or close relatives. Infanticide, followed by cannibalism, was common in many areas, but it is well documented amongst Aboriginal Australians. Now, human predation is the hunting of people from unrelated or perhaps hostile groups in order to consume them. According to researcher Bruce M. Knauf, uh, hunting people was an opportunistic extension of seasonal foraging or pillaging strategies in portions of southern New Guinea lowland rainforests, with human carcasses just as welcome as animal remains as sources of nourishment. Because inhabitants near the coasts and rivers were frequently better nourished and hence often physically larger and stronger than those living inland, they raided inland bush peoples with impunity and often little fear of retaliation. Human predation has also been well documented in adjacent Bismarck Archipelago and in Australia. In the Congo Basin, groups such as the Zappo Zaps hunted humans for nourishment even when game was abundant. The term gastronomic cannibalism has been suggested for cases where human flesh is eaten to provide a supplement to the regular diet, thus essentially for its nutritional value, or in an alternative definition for cases where it is eaten without ceremony other than culinary in the same manner as the flesh of any other animal. While the phrase has been critiqued for being too broad to accurately describe a specific form of cannibalism, many records do show that nutritional or culinary concerns may play a role in the acts even outside of times of scarcity. In the Congo Basin, where many of the eaten were butchered slaves rather than enemies killed in war, anthropologist Emil Torde observes that, quote, the most common reason for cannibalism was simply gastronomic. The natives love the flesh that speaks in parentheses, as human flesh was commonly called and paid for it. According to historian K. Ray Chong, learned cannibalism was often practiced for culinary appreciation throughout Chinese history. In his popular book, Guns, Germs and Steel, Jared Diamond suggests that protein starvation was probably the ultimate reason for cannibalism that was widespread in the traditions of New Guinea highland societies and cannibals in New Zealand and Fiji justify their actions as a lack of animal meat. In Liberia, a former former cannibal stated that allowing the flesh of killed foes to spoil would have been wasteful, and human flesh eaters in the Bismarck Archipelago agreed with this sentiment. Anthropologists disagree on the importance of functionalism explanations for understanding institutionalized cannibalism. And of course, while it's not a motive, there is a term for innocent cannibalism, and that's been used for circumstances where people consume human flesh without realising they are consuming human flesh. 
It is also the topic of mythology, such as the one about Theseus, who act, uh, sorry, uh, the- Thyestes, Thyestes, who accidentally ate the flesh of his own children. There are also documented occurrences of cannibalism in the Congo Basin, where even in the 1950s, tourists were occasionally offered a meat entree, only to discover later that the meat was of human origin. Human cannibalism has a long and complex history, intertwined with various cultural, social, and psychological factors. And while often regarded with horror and disgust in modern societies, it's been practiced by different cultures across different periods of history for a variety of reasons. This episode will seek to explore the phenomenon of human cannibalism, examining its historical context, cultural significance, psychological underpinnings, and moral implications. The human, the practice of human cannibalism, it dates back thousands of years and has been documented in various cultures and civilizations around the world. Some societies, such as certain tribes in the Amazon rainforest or the Pacific Islands, cannibalism was a ritual practice associated with warfare, religious ceremonies, or ancestor worship. For example, the Aztecs practiced ritual cannibalism as part of their religious rituals, believing that consuming the flesh of sacrificial victims would endow them with the strength and attributes of the deceased. Cannibalism within Aztec culture is a complex and controversial topic that historians and anthropologists continue to study. While evidence does suggest that cannibalism did occur in certain circumstances, such as religious rituals and possibly in the aftermath of warfare during times of extreme food scarcity, its extent and its significance to the culture are still subject to debate. In religious contexts, cannibalism may have been a part of sacrificial rituals where consuming the flesh of sacred individuals was believed to imbue participants with spiritual powers. Similarly, consumption of defeated enemies' flesh might have served as a display of dominance or psychological warfare. Accounts of Aztec cannibalism primarily come from Spanish conquistadors and missionaries, whose perspectives may have been influenced by cultural biases and religious beliefs. As such, interpretations of Aztec cannibalism vary among scholars, with some suggesting it was widespread and deeply ingrained in Aztec culture, while others argue it was more limited and possibly exaggerated by European observers. Similar to the Aztecs, cannibalism within Mayan culture is also a subject steeped in scholarly debate and interpretation. While evidence suggests instances of ritual consumption of human flesh, the practice frequent uh, though, sorry, the precise frequency and significance of such practices remain unclear. Mayans were renowned for their elaborate religious ceremonies, some of which involved human sacrifice. Following these rituals, there are indications that the bodies of the sacrificed individuals may have been consumed. However, interpretations vary wildly regarding on whether this consumption was literal or symbolic. Some argue that cannibalism served as a symbolic act, representing a, commun- uh, a communion with the divine or ancestors rather than a practice means of subsistence. Others have suggested that economic factors or times of scarcity might have driven individuals to resort to cannibalism as a last resort for survival. European accounts from Spanish conquistadors and missionaries provide much of the information about Mayan cannibalism. However, similar to with the Aztecs, these accounts are often sensationalized or exaggerated, complicating efforts to understand the true nature of these practices. Archaeological evidence, including human remains showing signs of butchering and consumption, further fuels the discussion. Yet, interpreting these findings requires careful consideration of cultural context and ritual significance. While there is evidence to suggest that cannibalism occurred within Mayan and Aztec culture, its prevalence, cultural significance, and actual practices remain subject to ongoing research and interpretation. It's crucial to approach this topic with sensitivity and a critical eye towards the biases inherent in historical accounts. For another slightly more recent example of cannibalism within a culture, we need to travel to my backyard, Oceania, more specifically, Papua New Guinea. 
Cannibalism, a practice documented within select indigenous communities of Papua New Guinea as recently as 2012, reflects a complex interplay of cultural beliefs, social structures, and historical contexts. With these societies, cannibalistic rituals held significant ritualistic and symbolic importance, often intricately linked to concepts of warfare, spirituality, and the transference of power. These customs were deeply entrenched within the fabric of social life, governed by elaborate sets of rituals, traditions, and taboos that regulated when and how such acts could be performed. Cannibalism was not merely an act of consumption, but rather a symbolic gesture believed to facilitate the absorption of desirable qualities or spiritual energies from the consumed individual, be it a fallen enemy or a deceased family member. However, the landscape of Papuan New Guinean society has undergone notable transformations in recent decades marked by the encroachment of Western values and the spread of Christianity and initiatives aimed at modernizing and education. These shifts have significantly impacted traditional practice, leading to the gradual decline in the prevalence of cannibalistic rituals. Now, while we're on the topic of cannibalism in Papua New Guinea, we should talk about Kuru. What is Kuru? I hear you asking. Well, I'm glad you ask, because Kuru... It's a prion disease that spread in the Four tribe in New, in New Guinea due to the practice of cannibalism. Although the Four's mortuary cannibalism was well documented, the practice had ceased before the cause of the disease was recognised. However, some scholars argue that although postmortem dismemberment was the practice during funeral rites, cannibalism was not. Marvin Harris theorizes that it happened during a famine period, co <laughs> coincident with the arrival of Europeans, and was rationalized a as a religious rite. In 2003, a publication in Science magazine received a large amount of press attention when it suggested that early humans may have practiced extensive cannibalism. According to that research, genetic markers commonly found in modern humans worldwide suggest that today many people carry a gene that evolved as protection against prion brain diseases that can be spread by consuming human brain tissue. In 2006, reanalysis of the data questioned this hypothesis because it claimed to have found a data collection bias, which led to an erroneous conclusion. This claimed bias came from incidents of cannibalism used in the analysis not being due to social cultures, but being carried out by explorers, stranded seafarers, or escaped convicts. The original authors published a subsequent paper in 2008 defending their conclusions. Now this is one of those times where I realise that everything is linked, because a guy that we've talked about many times in the show, Jim Corbett, actually comes up in the research when discussing cannibalization, and I wouldn't have realised, like... How would that be possible? But it makes sense based on some stuff that we've talked about in the past. So one possible reason that humans might have adapted to cannibalism was predator control. Jim Corbett proposed that after major epidemics when human corpses are easily accessible to predators, there are more cases of man-eating leopards. So removing dead bodies through ritual cannibalism before the cultural traditions of burying and burning bodies appeared in human history, might have been a practical reason for hominids and early humans to make control for predation. So basically, before we decided that we should be burying or burning our dead bodies, we would just leave them out in the forest. And then a leopard or a tiger comes by and eats it and says, that was yummy, oh, more please, and they turn into man-eaters. And if early humans clocked on that that was what was happening, very possible that they too might have uh, decided we should get rid of these bodies by eating them before the animal can. Or even if in scenarios where the ground was unsuitable to bury them and we didn't have furnaces to burn bodies yet, you can't just throw them on a fire and expect it to the whole body to go away. Again, cannibalism could have been a really good way to keep uh, the populations of man-eating animals at control, especially in the early, early years of humanity. So we've talked about so uh, social or institutionalized cannibalism a lot just now. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Very fascinating. Let's move on to another reason that people might uh, resort to cannibalism, which is survival. So many times throughout history, cannibalism was born out of necessity during times of famine, extreme hardship, or survival situations. 
Historical accounts such as the Donner Party incident in 1846, where a group of American pioneers resorted to cannibalism to survive after being stranded in the Sierra Nevada mountains, highlight the desperate measures humans may take when faced with extreme circumstances. Another well-known instance of survival cannibalism is that of Franklin's Lost Expedition, which happened from 1845 to 1848. So Franklin's Lost Expedition was led by Sir John Franklin, and they set sail from England in 1846 with the ambitious goal of navigating the elusive Northwest Passage, a sea route through the Arctic that promised a shorter route to Asia. Now, a lot of times when explorers were doing this, you'd be like, why, why are you doing that, man? Why are you risking your life? It all comes down to the same thing. Capitalism, baby. See, if you can claim a shorter distance through your shipping, you can uh, get your goods delivered uh, quicker and cheaper. Uh, and that's your economy improves. I'm not an econo- e- economist, but that's basically how it works, I'm pretty sure. Um, so yeah, they tried to get through an uh, elusive route through the Arctic that promised a shorter route to Asia. The expedition compromised, uh, comprised sorry, of two ships, HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, carrying a crew of 120 men. Initially, the expedition made good progress through the Arctic waters, but by September 1846, both ships had become trapped in ice off the coast of King William Island. Despite their best efforts to free the vessels, they remained immobilized in the icy grip of the Arctic for over a year. As time passed, the harsh conditions took their toll on the crew. Exposure to extreme cold, dwindling supplies, and the onset of lead poisoning from poorly sealed canned goods weakened their resolve. Desperation set in, and it's believed that for some members, they resorted to cannibalism in a desperate bid for survival. Amid these desperate conditions, evidence suggests that some crew members resorted to cannibalism as a last resort. Skeletal remains discovered in the Arctic showed signs of dismemberment, while Inuit oral histories recount encounters with the expedition members displaying signs of desperation and starvation, including cannibalistic behaviour. Despite search efforts launched in the wake of their disappearance, the fate of Franklin and its crew remained shrouded in mystery for decades. Over time, however, artifacts, grave sites, and written records left behind by the populations who lived in the Arctic began to surface, offering tantalizing clues about their final days. Modern expeditions with equipped advanced technology eventually pieced together the tragic fate of the Franklin expedition. Starvation, exposure, and disease ultimately claimed the lives all aboard the Erebus and the Terror. Their story, marked by courage, endurance, and ultimately tragedy, remains one of the most enduring mysteries in the annals of maritime exploration, inspiring ongoing efforts to uncover the truth behind their disappearance. Now, only one year after the Franklin expedition set sail, another group of explorers would meet a similar fate. I'm talking, of course, about the infamous Donner Party. Now, everyone in America knows the Donner Party, but people in Australia and the rest of the world might not. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. So the Donner Party was a journey that began with the hopes of a better life in California amidst the backdrop of westward expansion in the 19th century America. Led by brothers George and Jacob Donner, the group set out from Springfield, Illinois in the spring of 1846. They were part of a larger wave of pioneers seeking new opportunities in the American West. Opting for a supposedly quicker route, the Donner Party chose the Hastings Cutoff, a path through the rugged Sierra Nevada mountains proposed by Lansford Hastings. However, this decision would prove fateful. Delays in obtaining supplies and the challenging terrain of the cutoff slowed their progress significantly. By the time they reached the Sierra Nevada mountains in October 1846, early snowstorms had trapped the party near Truckee Lake. As the snows deepened and provisions dwindled, the pioneers found themselves facing a dire situation. The harsh winter conditions made hunting for food impossible, and the limited supplies they had brought with them quickly ran out. As desperation set in and starvation became imminent, the pioneers faced an unthinkable choice – either perish from hunger or resort to extreme measures to survive. It's under these dire circumstances that some members of the Donner Party made the harrowing decision to consume the flesh of their deceased compatriots. Most of the party built crude cabins near what is now known as Donner Lake. 
The Donners, whose progress was delayed by a wagon accident, made, simil- made a similar count a few miles further east on the trail near Adler Creek. Eight days of almost continuous snow followed, during, the t- during which time many of the oxen, the chief reserve of food, wandered off or were lost. On November 20th, Patrick Breen, whose family had joined the Donner Party in Independence, Missouri, began a diary, which he continued until March 1st. Breen's account of the winter of 1846 to 1840, uh, 1847 would provide the only contemporary written records of the Donner Party's ordeal. On December 15th, Bayless Williams, an employee of the Reed family, died of malnutrition at the lake camp. His was the first recorded death in the camps, although many others would soon follow. On December 16th, a party of 10 men and 5 women set out to cross the mountains on improvised snowshoes. During a month of harrowing, often overwhelming hardships from cold snows, deep snow, storms and adequate food, they struggled on. Eight of the men died, and the bodies of some of those were eaten by the survivors. Two men and all the women got through to the Sacramento Valley. The settlers of a California the settlers of California organized a relief party which left Fort Santa in Sacramento on January 31st, 1847. Heroically struggling through the deep snow, seven men reached the lake camp on February 18th. They took 23 of the starving immigrants, including 17 children, back to the settlement. Several deaths occurred along the way. Other relief parties followed, but because of illness and injuries, it was impossible to remove everyone. After dogs and cow hides had been devoured, many deaths occurred, and the survivors were forced to resort to cannibalism of the dead bodies. The last survivor, Louis Kiesberg, who had supported himself during the last weeks by cannibalism, did not leave the camp until April 21st. Five of the emigrants died before reaching the mountain camps, 34 at the camps or on the mountain while attempting to cross, and one just after reaching the settlement. Two men who had joined the party at the lake also died. The total number of deaths was 42, with 47 survivors. For months, the Donner Party endured unimaginable hardships, clinging to hope that while struggling against the relentless cold and hunger, relief efforts were launched, but harsh winter weather and rugged terrain made rescue attempts perilous and slow. When relief finally did arrive in February 1847, the scene was one of unimaginable suffering. Many had perished from starvation, exposure and disease. Survivors bore the physical and emotional scars of their ordeal, forever haunted by the memory of what they'd been forced to survive. A more recent example of survival cannibalism is that of the doomed Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, also known as the Andes Disaster. This story has been well documented, including in two Hollywood films. Um, The first one was called Alive! And it starred Ethan Hawke, and uh, Josh Lucas was there as well. And a second movie that came out last year, which is nominated for an Oscar for this year, I believe, called Society of Snow, or Society of the Snow. I tried to watch both of them, couldn't really get into it, because uh, it was making me a bit too sad. But yeah, this, uh, this story is quite well known. And um, last podcast on the left recently did a, a like a three-part episode on this. Um, so if you want to know all about this, you can go and listen to that. But I'm just going to give a brief overview of what happened. So... Um, This story, it's a testament to the resilience of the human spirit in the face of unimaginable adversity. There you go. Departing from Montevideo, Uruguay, on October 13th, uh, 1972, the flight carried 45 passengers, including members of the Uruguayan rugby team, their friends and family. Their destination was Santiago, Chile, but they would never make it. As the aircraft, a Fairchild FH-227D, soared through the skies, it encountered severe weather conditions and navigational errors. Turbulence shook the plane violently, and low visibility made it difficult for the pilots to maintain their course. In a moment of horror, the aircraft crashed into the desolate Andes Mountains, shattering the lives of those aboard. So many people died in the crash, but a fair few survived, and those survivors found themselves stranded in a remote and unforgiving landscape, surrounded by towering peaks and treacherous terrain. 
entirely cut off from civilization with no means of uh, communication, they faced a daunting struggle for survival. The initial shock of the crash gave way to a grim reality. They were alone, vulnerable, and in desperate need of help. And one thing that didn't help was after the crash, one of the pilots was gravely injured, but he told the survivors that they were um, near Chile. They weren't far. They just needed to climb over the mountain and be there. Um, this was wrong. They were nowhere near where they thought they were, which further complicated things later in the story. So in the days that followed, the survivors banded together, drawing on their strength, resourcefulness, and ingenuity to endure. They scavenged what supplies they could from the wreckage, fashioning makeshift shelters from the debris. They melted snow for water and huddled together for warmth against the biting cold. Unfortunately... Of all the things they could salvage, food wasn't one of them. So this was a very short flight. So there was no meal service. So there was very little food on board. And what food was on board uh, had been sucked out of the plane earlier during the crash as well. So there was very little sustenance available on the actual aircraft. As the days turned into weeks, the situation grew increasingly dire. With food supplies dwindling and hunger gnawing at their bellies. With no sign of rescue on the horizon... The survivors were forced to make a choice, succumb to the cold and starvation or take drastic measures to survive. In a moment of desperation, some survivors made the agonizing decision to consume the flesh of their deceased uh, teammates. It was a choice born of necessity, a last resort in the face of imminent death. The survivors grappled with feelings of guilt, shame and revulsion, but they knew that it was the only way for them to stay alive. Approaching cannibalism with utmost respect to the deceased, the survivors rationed the flesh out carefully, ensuring that every part of the body was utilized. Despite the trauma and stigma associated with their actions, their primary focus remained on survival at any cost. So they would start with the survivors that were at the top of the snow. Basically, um, and not to sound crass, um, body parts would be sticking out of the snow and they would cut strips of flesh off those body parts and consume those. And they would consume them raw as well. Um, they weren't really able to light fires. It was too cold outside. Um, and they didn't really have much fuel either. They, they ran they ran out of wood to burn pretty quickly. And there's no wood up on these mountains. There's no sticks. You can't pick up sticks. Um, so yeah, they, they basically had to eat raw meat. Uh, now, as they went on, um, the winter was sort of... It was coming out of the winter months. And in the latter part of their uh, stay on the on the mountain, they were kind of able to cook some of the meat by putting it on the f- top of the fuselage and it would cook in the sun a little bit. But still, for the most part, they were eating bits of human strips of human flesh raw. And what made one of the bits worst, um, and I learned this through listening to the last podcast on the left, um, they one of the survivors had their face smashed or their teeth smashed out. Oh no, sorry, they, their teeth the teeth dropped out. I think due to malnourishment. And so one of the other survivors had to chew up human meat in their mouth and spit it into their friend's mouth for them to survive. Absolutely harrowing and disgusting. So the week stretched into months and still there was no sign of rescue. But amid the despair, a glimmer of hope emerged. Two survivors, Nando Parado and Roberto Casina, embarked on a perilous journey to seek help. They traversed the treacherous mountains, braving freezing temperatures, avalanches, and sheer cliffs in their quest for salvation. Their journey was arduous and fraught with danger, but their determination never wavered. Eventually, after 72 days of isolation, they encountered a Chilean shepherd who alerted authorities to their plight. A rescue mission was launched, and on December 23, 1972, the remaining survivors were airlifted to safety. In total... 16 individuals had managed to survive the ordeal, which is a miracle. Uh, it's a miracle that anyone survived. It's such a crazy story. They went through so much. Their story captivated the world, inspiring awe and admiration for their courage, resilience, and unwavering determination to survive against all odds. The legacy of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 lives on as a testament to the indomitable human spirit and the power of hope in the darkest of times. So, in summary, what have we learned today? Well, we've learned that human cannibalism, it's a complex and multifaceted phenomenon that's been practiced by various cultures throughout the history of the world for various reasons. And whether it's driven by ritualistic survival or psychological factors, cannibalism raises some profound questions about morality, um, culture, and the human condition. 
by exploring its historical context, cultural significance, and psychological underpinnings, uh, we can gain a deeper understanding of this taboo practice. And with it, we can gain a little bit more of an understanding of the complexities of the human psychology and the human experience. So, today we pretty much talked all about institutionalized and survival cannibalism, aka social and survival. But next week, we're going to talk about the other category, disordered cannibalism or pathological cannibalism, aka serial killers. So we're going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer, Albert Fish, that guy who got a guy on the internet to eat him, uh, and a bunch of others as well. So we're going to get really true crimey next week when we talk about human cannibalisms, colon, the serial killers. And that is where we're going to pick up next week with the conclusion of our series on human cannibalization. And there you have it, gang. Part one of our cannibalism series, our human cannibalism series, where we talked about society and survival. Um, I had a, well, this sounds a bit morbid. I had a great time researching this episode. I learned a lot. Um, it is, it's such a fascinating subject. It really is so in-depth. There's so much to learn. And this episode really barely scratches the surface of it. So if this is something that you're morbidly curious or interested about, I really recommend doing some more of your own research. And if you do that, let me know and, and send me through anything that you learned that maybe I didn't talk about. Um, it is such a multifaceted uh, uh, phenomenon that occurs not just within humanity, but within a bunch of other um, species as well. Yeah. Also, I should mention um, the Donner Party and Franklin's... Uh, actually, no, I don't think they've done Franklin's uh, expedition, but the Donner Party and the... Um, Disaster in the Andes, both stories that last podcast and left have covered in depth in multi-episode series. I've really just done a really basic overview, but if you want to go back and listen to those, um, I, I highly recommend last podcast and left because they, they do true crime history more, better than anyone else. So definitely check that out. Um, for you'll learn, so, you'll learn such great stuff. Like I learned that, um, this is pretty gross, but for the people stuck on the Andes, because all they were eating for like months was strips of human flesh and like literally like literally eating leather out of the shoes um a lot of them were like constipated for a long time and they needed to use human bones as as poop sticks basically they needed to dig the poo out of them um they were in extreme uh gastronomical distress i guess you would call it um yeah just a lot of really morbid details in that series it's quite a funny series too uh, <laughs> yeah just go listen to them because I don't know how I can explain how that's a funny story, but they make it funny. And it's honestly such a great story. I, I might go back and watch Society of the Snow. I don't know why I couldn't get into it. Maybe it's because it was a movie with subtitles and I was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, we're not going to do a... Yeah, that's going to be our episode today. We're not going to do a Scratch of the Day or a Wacky Weirdo or anything else. It's been an hour. I've been talking for an hour. That'll do. Um, really quickly, I did want to say thank you to some people who reached out. I'm going to thank, uh, send a thank you very quickly to Paul, uh, who sent me a Scratch of the Day episode we were going to talk about today. We'll save it for next week. Um, but essentially, it's a great title. Man Mauled to Death by Lion After Trying to Take a Selfie with It. That's a great story. We're going to uh, learn all about that next week. But for now, that's going to be it. I want to give a quick plug to the website, um, we do have a website now. If you if you haven't been paying attention for the last few weeks, um, we have a website that has a bunch of stuff, but primarily um, the thing you'd be most interested in is merch. It has merch. You can get some merch. Isn't that nice? Um, you can buy a shirt or a mug or a drink bottle or a hat. I've got all of those things now and they are good quality and I love them. Um, yeah, so you can go to the website and get your own as well. I've tried to keep it as cheap as possible so everyone can afford it. Um, I basically don't get much out of it, but I want you to get nice stuff. So you can head to um, maneaterspod.com to pick up your own Man Eaters merch and just generally stay in the loop with what's going on. Uh, it links to the uh, newest episode of the of the show, so you can click that and see what's going on. Also, eventually I'll be doing live shows, probably limited to Australia to start with, but um, eventually hopefully in America as well. And maybe Canada and the UK, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to the UK this year. And so it might be cool to go and do kind of a mini show if I can. I don't know if I have time, but we'll see. If you live in the UK and, and uh, 
you reckon you know a good place would be for me to do a little show, an intimate little show, maybe with like 50 seats? Let me know. Uh, I reckon that would be a lot of fun. Okay, everyone, that's going to be it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your continued support. Um, please check out all of our social media, Instagram, where you can get involved in voting for the next episode. Also, don't forget to check out Patreon. Patreon is such a great way to support podcasters such as myself. The show couldn't go ahead with this, without the support of people on Patreon. So thank you so much to the people who do support the show. Patreon.com slash mandators. At the very least, check it out. Just go go to Maneaters, uh, go to patreon.com slash maneaters and have a look. And maybe you decide you don't want to support, and that's fine, but at least go have a look. What well, you've got nothing to lose. Um, yeah. Alright, I need to go have a drink of water, and uh, that'll do it. I'll see you next week, everybody, for some serial killers. Uh, have a good week. Stay safe. As we've learned, it's a jungle out there. <laughs> <laughs>